The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. What I pray happens in this hour is to introduce you um, and maybe further your thinking uh, relative to scripture, relative to the way that we think about counseling, uh, how to be a healthy interpreter of what's going on. Uh, when somebody's sitting down and telling you a story about um, their life and the particular issues that are going on in their life, I, I want you to be um, well-versed in how to understand someone from the Scripture particularly. So I want to start with this question, and then I'll ask this question after we pray, because we need the Lord's help in order to understand how to, how to see people how to know people, and how to understand what's going on in their lives. So let's ask for His help even as we train to think about this, okay? Father, we are grateful for the time that we get to share together. Uh, we're grateful for this conference. We're grateful for the time and energy that's been spent um, for Your name's sake. And Father, that's what we pray, is that we walk away from this place equipped, understanding You, knowing You better, because our heart's desire is to love the way You love and to comfort people and to care for them in the way that you do that. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant us wisdom tonight, um, that you would help us to see maybe differently than we saw when we walked in here. And so, Father, would you grant us grace and wisdom that comes from you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So if we begin with this question, what is normal? Now, I want this to be interactive. If I were to ask you this question, what is normal? It's kind of an interesting question because as you start to think about it, it seems like it should be simple, but it's not quite simple, especially in the world that we live in, right? It's kind of like asking the question, what does it mean to be healthy? What does it mean to be healthy? You think about it like this. My aunt, who was 53 last year, passed away from terminal cancer. What does it mean to be healthy? She's 53. She knows she has a short time to live. She's a faithful follower and servant of the Lord Jesus. Compare her as a healthy human being to a 25-year-old who's climbing the corporate ladder. Things are going well, but his heart and mind is darkened to the things of God. Who's more healthy? You think in different terms because you see with eyes of faith. So when you think about this issue of normal, what is normal? We have cultural definitions of normal. We have cultural expressions of what we think normal is. How do we know that? Well, because we try and define what is abnormal, don't we? Take the DSM. For those of you who are unfamiliar with that, it's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's on uh, edition number five. There have been many editions, more than just five. There have been revisions of certain numbers. In this particular book, this is the book that describes culturally what abnormal is to the psychological community. Uh, some have called it actually the Bible of secular psychology. So when you think about their expressions, they never define, you can read the introduction, I want to encourage you to do it at some point. You can read the introduction. You never see a definition of what it means to be a normal human being. But the book is filled with a thousand pages, and I'm not exaggerating, a thousand pages 
of symptoms and expressions of what we have defined, culturally speaking, of things that are abnormal. Now, we know based on definition, how do you describe something that's abnormal without first having a definition of normal? Now, we would agree, even some of the the symptomology that is described in the DSM, that those types of behaviors, those types of symptoms, those types of emotions, those types of feelings might be abnormal to the human experience. The problem is that the way we see those symptoms and why we think they exist is defined by what we think normal ought to be. So the question then is this, what is normal? So if I were to ask you that question, what are some of your thoughts on what is normal? What do you think? Yes? For one thing, it's shifting. It is shifting. It is shifting. It's not a concrete standard. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a relative standard. Okay. And you're speaking culturally now. Or maybe we would say you're speaking in human terms, as the Bible would describe. Okay. What do you think? I would say normal is that which is empirically and logically consistent with reality. Okay. Is that true always? What about miracles? So we think about empiricism. How do we define empiricism? There are all kinds of questions that we can dive into relative to how we define that which is normal. Because even people disagree relative to what is empirically founded and what's not empirically founded. And if we look at scientific history, based on things that we believe to be empirically true 100 years ago, do we actually think that they're true now? No. We, we see ebb and flow of those types of things throughout history. So what we see is in the present world that we live in, Paul distinguishes in Colossians 3 two different ways that we as human beings see and understand the world. One is through eyes of faith, thinking about things in terms of that which is eternal. We who believe would describe this as seeing according to the kingdom of God versus seeing according to the kingdom of this world or according to the prince of the power of the air or according to, as the scripture says, the spirit of this age. Right? There's a certain way that we think and describe things. Think about it like this. When you see something unfold, your experience, what you see happen, and the way you interpret what you do and how you might respond to it is often based on what you see with your naked eye. What you see unfold, what you think happens in that particular moment, and you respond according to what you see. And often what happens as human beings, as a part of the curse of sin, is our mind's eye can only see that which is tangible right in front of us. And what begins to happen is we are swayed to believe that that's the only reality that exists. I would argue that in the world in which we live, what's become so prevalent in the psychological secular psychological world is looking simply with eyes that see what's tangible versus describing that there's a world that exists that only eyes of faith can see. So when we describe normal, we're talking about two different veins depending upon the kingdom and the lens through which you see. Do you see according to the spirit of of this age or do you see according to the wisdom of the kingdom of God? Scripture gives us that broad narrative throughout the totality of Scripture. Oftentimes, the wisdom of the world is categorized as something like Babylon or Babylonian ideas, which are wrought with sexual immorality and um, 
selfish desires and pursuing prosperity above anything else. It's living according to what is believed to be normal and helpful in the present age in which we live. And then you see the beauty of the wisdom of God. The wisdom that comes from above. The wisdom that Colossians chapter 2 says is only found in Christ. And he rearranges the lenses by which we now see. And we begin to interpret abnormal differently because now we have a different definition of that which is normal. You see, what we understand by the world is not that there ought not to be trouble in this world. We, we know that clearly based on the scriptures. But when we experience trouble, and when we have trouble, two things, how do we respond to it and how do we identify with it? And that depends on the eyes with which you see. I would submit to you that most of what's happening, even in Christian circles today, defines normal in a secular spiritual age. And we only see with eyes that see the tangible. When we look at people who suffer, how do I know what I believe the culture thinks is normal? Because I see how they define that which is abnormal. Based on the DSM, do you know what's normal? What, what the culture believes normal humanity should live and be like? What's normal to, secular, uh, to the secular culture based on what you see them describing as abnormal? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Sleeping. Okay. Sleeping is normal? Yeah, there's really no state that is normal except you're sleeping. Okay. Anything else? What else do you see? What's described as abnormal? Yeah. I mean, gender confusion. Gender confusion. Yeah. Yeah. So what is king or what do we believe is normal when we talk about gender identity particularly? It really has nothing to do with gender in particular. What does it have to do with? Think about this category. Let's think about anxiety for a second. When you think about anxiety, what is it telling you if that's what we believe to be abnormal as a human experience and what we should fix and get rid of that causes anxiety? What are we saying is normal then? Or, yes, or take depression. And we think about sadness and depression, and we ought never, in our worldview, secular worldview, we ought never to experience anything that is depressive. Is that true according to Scripture? In this world you will have trouble. <laughs> but take heart, I have overcome the world. We live according to a different reality, a different definition of that which is normal. And what happens when we define normal according to the spirit of the age, we go looking for the remedies that they say are necessary. And what happens is it further blinds the eyes of our heart. It further darkens the way that we see not being able to see the truth. So when we think about normal, normal has, has a description in the scriptures. Uh, normal has a way of thinking in the scriptures. In Christian world, do we have an example of normal. Jesus Christ the righteous. When you look back at Genesis chapter 1, how was man made? In the image of God. Meaning that what was normal, and we're talking, if you think about the, the meta narrative of Scripture, what some people call redemptive history, 
We're talking about prior to Genesis chapter 3, right? You guys learned to count 1, 2, 3, right? So prior, Genesis 1, the image of God is what we were made in prior to the fall. Meaning, what was normal for humanity to reflect the character and the nature of God. And then Genesis 3 occurred. Now we look at the life of Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, what does it say? That He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Jesus came to the earth to be Him in the flesh, to exemplify what normal humanity should look like. Us living in normal fashion. Was Jesus at times downcast? You visited Him in the Gospels? Walked with him in that language that describes him in Gethsemane. He was downcast. Is that abnormal to human experience in a post-Genesis 3 world? That's not abnormal. Even secularists are now describing this. There's a book that I borrowed the title from, from a completely secular psychiatrist. His name is Alan Francis. He was actually the, the writer of, or the leader of the task force of the dsm 4 the version that came out back in the 80s. One of the leading psychiatrists in the Western world for over 20 years, he wrote a book called Saving Normal, and he says the way that we're defining normal in the secular world is we're losing what it even means to be a normal human being. And I'm screaming out to him saying, in Christianity, we have the answer that's the bedrock for what normal humanity should look like. And his name is Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of a couple things. Number one, all of us are broken people, which means that we experience in the spirit of this age, the brokenness of this age. So it's very normal that we as people, believer and unbeliever, experience brokenness in the world in which we live. That is very normal human experience. You say, you mean I experience depression at times? That may be true, that you experience very depressive situations at times. When you lose a loved one and you grieve, right, we in the Christian world have to cease thinking that grieving is sinful. Right? You experience legitimate loss of a loved one and what's going to be a normal response. The level of your grief often demonstrates the level of deep relationship that you have with that individual. And what's it reminding you of consistently? Why did they die? Well, you might list things like cancer or uh, they made some foolish choices or why did they die? It's because of sin. And what should it remind us of as we grieve? This is not the way it was supposed to be. In the words of some theologians. And it causes us, ought to cause us to hate sin. To have a hatred toward that which causes this type of brokenness and loss that we experience. It's not an abnormal situation, right? But there's a normal way to respond. And what's the normal way to respond? In a way that honors and glorifies God. Now let's get this off the table. For those who do not believe, those who are not regenerate, if you don't understand that language, those who are not Christians, those who have not been born again, They can't see that like this. They can't respond appropriately. Why? Because why do they live? What's the reason for which they live? Who do they live for? 
They live for themselves. And so when they respond according to the kingdom of God, how do they respond? In a way that's in wickedness. So when they experience these types of brokenness that's very normal to the world in which we live, according to the scriptures and the sin that's involved in the curse of the world, how do they respond? They often respond in ways that are self-protection. And in those means of self-protection, what are they looking for? Something to help them move past and get over that which is tearing them down. And they think this, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I would describe that as truly being the grace of God screaming out to them that there's shalom, and shalom is found in one particular place, and it's the Lord Jesus. You think about us as believers. There's a way in which we are to respond. In our brokenness, we are living in a very abnormal way relative to the things of God. The beauty of this is at justification. Do you guys understand the language of justification? That at that particular moment where uh, Christ redeems you, He makes you alive. As 2 Corinthians 3 says, He unveils your heart. At that particular moment, you're made alive. And now you see differently. And at that moment, what begins to happen is Jesus says when He buys you, what will He also do? He's the author and the what? Finisher of your faith. And Romans 8, 28 and 29 describe that you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of who? Christ. Now, tie this all together. Why is that a good thing? What did Christ do really, 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 really well? He lived normal human life. What does that mean? He lived the reason for which you were made, which was to live in the image of who? To reflect the glory and the character and the nature of God in everything he did. If I ask the question, why did he die on the cross? Well, we would say all kinds of things. But all those things are summed up in the fact that he did it for the glory of God. Every response that he had to situations in life, every response to a person, every response to a situation that he was in, he reflected the character and the nature of God. And so God, in his wisdom, now redeems us through Christ. The Holy Spirit makes us alive. And now what begins to happen? He conforms you to the image of his God is brilliant. Because now what is he doing? He's repairing you from being abnormal to now being what? Normal. Why? Because you were created and made to image who? And if Christ did that really well, he's conforming you to the image of who? Christ. Now let's look at that in a couple of passages that I think are absolutely critical. We saw in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And we're told in Romans 8, 28 and 29, you guys know 28, right? God works all things together for good of those who love him and call according to his purpose. Don't forget 29, which is lumped with it in context, which says, what's the reason or definition of good? You see, in our cultural context, what do we think good is for? Whatever I define as being what? Good, right? That's ice cream and Sundays and all that kind of stuff. That's what we think is good. Or more money. God, I, I did this thing for you. And so if we could work this out to this hundredfold thing, that would be really awesome, right? That's the way we think about good. 
Or, God, I'm praying for my prodigal child that they'll come home and I'm going to do these couple things to serve other people. And if we could just work that out, that'd be awesome. That's how you define good. How does God define good? The next verse, which is he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his what? Son. So the way he defines good is him through life, James chapter 1, right, verse 2 and following, where he describes it. We can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing the testing of our faith produces what? Endurance. It's a testing that does what? Uh, breeds you into the image of Christ. Do you see how that works? And that's what he's doing. He's doing that which is good for you, returning you to normal. Right? As you walk with God and as life happens to you, your heart becomes transformed in such a way that the word of the Lord is dwelling in it. And when you're squeezed, what comes out? That which is honoring and praiseworthy to his name. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. This ought to be somewhat of a familiar verse if you've been around biblical counseling very long. If not, this will be a healthy introduction for you. In 2 Peter chapter 1, what he tells us is that he has given us everything that we need for life and what? Godliness. Now we often talk about this passage relative to sufficiency. And that's an appropriate, accurate faithful interpretation of the scripture that this is a demonstration that what God has given based on his character is he has given and given us everything that we what need but he's also given the point for which we need it what he's doing is defining for us what is normal human pursuit He's defining for us the goal of normal human life. You see, God doesn't answer all the questions that we have in our heart particularly. right? We want to know all sorts of things in our culture. What God is doing is he's giving us the reason for which he made us, which is godliness. He has given us everything we need for life and what? Godliness. The reason he's given you everything you need for godliness, because godliness is the reason for which you exist. What is godliness? You're transforming to the image of Christ. That way you display the character and the nature of God as you live in obedience to him. So the very thing that is most important that God says is normal human existence. He has given us everything we need to accomplish that particular task. Yet we ask all sorts of questions of God. How can we do this? And why, why can't we do this? And why can't we do that? When all, all the while what's happening is we're missing the point for which God has given us the scriptures. And in that, definitionally, he's given us the picture of what the point of human existence really is. How we respond in these types of situations. Think about this in relation to Ephesians chapter 4 or Colossians chapter 1. I'll turn and read Ephesians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 1, he's giving a picture of the church. He's described who Christ is. He's given us the picture of who Jesus is in relation to the church and what he came to do into washing us and making us clean. And then he gets to verse 28 and he says, In him, or we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man, talking about the church and the responsibility of the church, so that we can make every man complete in who? In Christ. So what is he saying is the primary goal? That we would all be conformed to the image of Christ. And why does he say that? Because that is normal. That's normal, right? So Ephesians chapter 4, go there. You're going to hear similar ideas that he proposes here in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me get there. <clears throat> Starting in verse 
Uh, the context is really 11. I'll pick up in 12 just to save a little bit of time. So you can go back to 11 there. <clears throat> so he says, uh, and he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip, um, to equip the saints, talking about the church, because we're not talking about a building when we describe that, uh, to equip the saints for the work of the what? Ministry. So you guys, even if you're not, if you don't hold a pastoral office, you are a minister of the gospel. Second Corinthians five calls you a minister of what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation between who? God and man. Because man can't live a normal life if they're not what? So he's given you to be ministers of reconciliation, so that people now can be conformed to the image of his son as you share the gospel and preach the word. And minister through making disciples. This is the picture that he gives. He goes on to say, verse 13, Until we attain, we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the what? Fullness of Christ. That's the progress that we're on. Now, we've got to stop, especially in Western culture, taking snapshots of your life and thinking, that's your identity. Right? Well, gosh, I can never be that, or I can never be this, or I can never be the other. We're all in this process of being conformed or made into mature manhood as it relates to who Jesus is. We're all being in the, in the process of being conformed to the image of his son. So you don't act normally according to the kingdom of God all the time, right? That's the Romans 6 and 7 discussion that Paul is wrestling with. And then he gives the beauty of Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ is only beautiful because of Romans 6 and 7. Because of who Paul is and he's wrestling in this body of death. He says, in me, in my flesh, there is no good thing. So in that, he's responding to say, all of that is true about me, but there's no condemnation for me who are in, who are in Jesus, who are in Christ. So the picture then is we are being conformed to the image of his son. And what does it keep us from? If you, if you keep reading in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says, so that, that's a purpose clause, whenever you read the scriptures, pay attention to those. He's giving you reason for uh, why he just said what he said, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says almost the exact same thing in Colossians chapter 1 after he finishes the story, uh, uh, in Colossians 2 after he finishes 1, 28 and 29 where he tells us not to be deceived by empty philosophy and vain deception, right? So what does it mean to be abnormal in the kingdom of God? What it means to be abnormal is not growing in godliness and being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that you hear. So what's critical? What are the things that Proverbs 4.23 that actually guard your heart? Let the word of Christ, Colossians 3.16, dwell in you, what? Richly. Why? Because it teaches you how to live no life normal. It gives you the responses when we live life in very abnormal ways. So how would we define abnormal? When we live in reflection of ourself. When you live in reflection of yourself. Often the emotions that we have the emotions that we express, the behaviors that we do, are a demonstration of a reflection of who we want ourselves to be. Often wanting to preserve the kingdom that we think we own and have. Can I just argue 
uh, in, for, with you for just a minute to say that in Scripture, that's the abnormal life. That's the life that's not appropriate relative to the kingdom. And so when you think about counseling, part of what you're trying to do is you're trying to help them overcome what they're experiencing because of the brokenness of the world, using the Scriptures, allowing the Holy Spirit to use the sword that He uses to conform them to the image of Christ so that now when life happens, they can respond in a way that is normal, in exaltation to Christ. Are you following that? So now as we establish that, it gives us a different perspective when we think about the secular. It gives us a different perspective when we start to look at all the symptoms that you see in the DSM, for example. So if I had the DSM in front of us, are any of you familiar with that? Have you ever read anything about that? Um, It's a really interesting book. Um, You shouldn't be afraid of it. It's really not all that scientific. It's interesting that in the title it says statistical manual because there really aren't many statistics in it. Um, So when you think about this particular book, and what you see is just simply a classification or a categorization of what we've defined as human problems. Okay? And then with those, definition of human problems, and those are all the categories of, of labels or diagnoses, as we would describe it. As you look at those particular labels and the diag- diagnoses that go with them, all they do is describe what's called criteria. And all that is is describing what is or what a person is experiencing whether that be behaviorally or emotionally, what they experience or what's common with these types of problems. If you, interestingly enough, okay, we know what our culture thinks is broken. We live in a, in a very biological age, like post-1960s, because of the way that secular psychology worked, shifting from a Freudian thinking to more Skinnerian thinking, which is secular um, behaviorism we begin to see a definition of man that's particularly biological, physiological. So why do we hear so much today about the way you fix these particular problems in life is you do this medication or that medication? Why do we think in terms like that? It's because that describes and defines for us what we believe to be broken. Did you know any remedy that we offer demonstrates what we believe to be broken? So so think about it in terms like that. The reason I say that is because when you read the DSM, one of the things that they tell you in the very beginning is that we are not claiming etiology. Does anybody know what that word means? Causality. We're not claiming to know what the cause is. And because of that, we're not giving you an informed treatment plan. So what are they describing? They're acknowledging. They at least have some integrity in the DSM to say, we're not really sure what causes this, right? And we're not going to suggest some sort of informed treatment plan. Right? Go read the introduction. It's not very long. You can see it for yourself. And so what does that tell us? We know a lot less than we think and what's proposed in the general culture than what we think we do as we look at the DSM and the criteria. Now, as we look at the criteria, what you'll see is that the Bible describes almost to a T the criteria that we would say are common human problems. And the Bible actually categorizes them in particular ways. How do we know what the secular world thinks about human problems based on the categorizations of the DSM? For example. Right. So we take symptoms. So you go to the doctor. And how's the doctor going to handle those particular symptoms lumped together? What's he going to do? All right. So now I'm not, I'm not ragging medication, so relax, okay? Don't get all stressed out and all that kind of stuff. Just, just relax. It's okay. 
But I, what I do want you to think through in this process is it tells us something about the way the culture thinks about us as human beings, doesn't it? What does it tell us about the way we, we think about human problems? What do we think are the causes of all these symptoms? If we're giving medication to fix the problem, what are we admitting we believe the problem to be, the cause? Because that's the remedy. And what's it going to fix? Something that's physiological. That's right. And so what are we boiling our, our selves down to? A bunch of biological self together. That's all we, we think we are based on what we are proposing as remedy. Are you following that? Now, if we take those symptoms that we see described in the criteria of a DSM and we start to look in Scripture, you won't see the word depressed, right? You won't see the word bipolar and things like that. But what you do see are critical explanations in the Scripture that describe these types of human experiences that the Bible actually describes as very normal human experiences according to the broken world that we live in. And then he proceeds to say, because I know, biblically, how and why most of these things happen, what does he also assume? The remedy. And if he gives the remedy, which is Christ, and in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that what it means to be normal in our humanity is to be conformed to the image of Christ, and often through wrestling and struggle, suffering and trial and difficulty and trouble in this world, he gives the remedy in Christ to say, this is how we respond appropriately. In a way that glorifies God through suffering, through trial, through difficulty. This changes the way that we think about normal. This radically alters the way that we understand human suffering. Right? We see it in different categories. We see it with different explanations, if you will. Now let's do this on a couple of these issues. What about when darkness encompasses your life? Does the Bible talk about that? Does the Bible speak of words like despair or downcast? or being despondent, even to the point to where the Bible describes several people in the scriptures who are despairing of life itself. So what are we talking about there? The actually, parts of this world, I'm not describing that Elijah had some sort of biological issue, right? What am I saying? I'm describing that this is a part of normal human experience. That he experienced darkness. What are we to do in situations like that? If this is normal to the human experience, right, how do we respond appropriately in a way that God says is normal for us to respond? Because God is wanting to use these issues. Let me, let me take a pause here and explain what I mean by that. Let's go back to James. Turn to James. James chapter 1, verse 2 says it like this. Well, he, he starts off in the beginning. He says... Uh, um, James, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. What he's doing is he's describing why have they been dispersed? Why have the disciples been dispersed? When I say disciples, I don't mean the 12. I'm talking about the disciples of Jesus, right? Why have they been dispersed? Because of what? What's the context? Persecution, Persecution right? That's fun. 
that's happy. Everybody loves it, right? <laughs> no, they've been dispersed because of that. So he's writing in that context. And then the very next thing he says in verse 2, and I want you to follow it because we're going to go to verse 8. Right? In verse 2, what does he say? <laughs> Consider, or to count. So what's he saying? Take into account. He's, he's saying, don't just assume things off the cuff. I want you to consider this. And how are we to consider this? Based on what in view? Not the temporal. Not what just unfolded that you could see with your naked eye. Don't interpret it just limited to this world is what he's saying. Right? How do you consider this? Based on the totality of the teaching of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, we are to consider these things based on that which is true eternally. Because it gives you a different perspective based on Colossians chapter 3. The way that we see is very different. So consider it all joy. Now, does that mean trial happens? You're like, dude, this is the coolest thing I've ever experienced in my whole life. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the thing in your heart that steadies you, that's at the base of who you are, is a disposition of joy. Why? Because there is nothing based on Romans chapter 8 that can rip you from the love of Christ. In that one day, not only in sanctification, but you will be glorified. And that is a done deal for those who believe. So you think about that picture. That's the underlying joy. And all the tossing of the waves that happen through the experience of life, it doesn't change that reality. And Jesus says, no one can snatch mine from my hand. No one. So when we think about the security that we have as those who believe, it radically changes the way we handle everything in life. So he says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter what? Various trials, wrestlings, pressures, right? The struggles of life. Those types of things Jesus was talking about when he says, in this world you will have trouble. Those types of things. The things that Jesus predicted when he was beaten and cursed. And he said, if they treated me this way, they will treat you this way. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Right Now, we don't sign up for that course. It's not something we're all eager to get to. <clears throat> but God describes it in several different places in the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, here in James, perseverance is something, an attribute to be pursued, to be loved, and that God is working that in us, perseverance through trial, anchored to Christ based on Hebrews 6.19. That he is the anchor of our soul. That's how you can have joy amid all the trouble on the outside. Doesn't mean you don't ever cry. Doesn't mean you aren't ever stressed. Doesn't mean you don't ever feel pressure or sadness or anything like that. Doesn't mean that. It means there's something in you that still calms the storm when things are raging on the outside. That's normal according to the scriptures because you're responding in the way of Christ in the face of a sinful and broken world. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be what? Perfect and complete. There's that same idea again that we've already encountered in Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, in Colossians as well, chapter 1, that the goal is for us to become complete in Christ. Even the description of Jesus washing us with the water of the word so that he could what? Present us blameless and holy before the Father. This is the picture of what it means to live normal human life in God's redemption. 
right? Knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But this is a really interesting transition to me. Why does he bring up the idea of wisdom now? But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Why does he say, if you lack wisdom, when we're talking about trials that are happening to me in my life? Because what's most critical about you is the wisdom that you have, because that's the way that you interpret the trial that's happening to you and the reason for which you're going through it, so that now you can respond according to the wisdom of God under the kingdom of Christ, in a way that's honoring and glorifying to him. But he says, hey, when this happens and you get deceived and you start thinking according to the ways of the world and you respond in a way that's not glorifying to God, to where you take advantage of others or you manipulate others to get yourself out of it, to protect yourself. When you do those things, it demonstrates that you lack what? You lack wisdom. And what does he say? If you lack wisdom, let him ask of who? God, who does what? Gives to all men liberally. Keep reading. Keep going. Somebody read loud. And it will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Wait, wait, stop. That sounds familiar. Doesn't that sound like Ephesians chapter 4? When we're not complete in Christ, what will we be like? The one who's driven and tossed by the wind. Same story that we saw in Colossians. We will be easily deceived by the ways of the world. And what will be the result when we're easily deceived and tossed to and fro? That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So I want you to get the context. So you can go look at the Greek yourself. It says double Sold. Two suke. Sold. Two sold person. What's he saying? That you're living according to two different wisdoms. And at this moment, they're competing. And what it means for you to walk in life, this trial is beginning to flesh out which soul you're really tethered to. Are you tethered to the faith that you have in Christ? Or are you walking according to the ways of the flesh? You are a double-souled man. You manipulate what's happening on the outside so that you benefit what you desire on the inside. And then he says you're a double-minded man and you will be what? This is a critical, critical, critical word. It happens two times in the Greek New Testament. It happens here and it happens in James chapter 3. This word is unstable. It means, let me set this up. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental What? Disorders. You're a double-minded or double-souled man, and you are disordered. That's the literal meaning of that word. You are disordered in all of your ways. What does he mean by that? You live in a way that's not normal, not orderly according to the things of God. You live in a way that was not God's intention in creating man in his what? Image. It's now a definition. He's giving us a description of what it means and what draws it out of us. Trials. What demonstrates. Did you know that almost every single case of depression, no matter how severe, 
is often tethered to some sort of deep life experience. Why is that? Because James chapter 1 is absolutely true. It demonstrates the soul that we are tethered to. And by that, I'm not describing that we're two-souled people. He's speaking metaphorically here. He's describing the soul that in that moment that we are living according to, the wisdom that we're living. That's why he says, ask wisdom from who? God, which if you tie the totality of the teaching of Scripture together, it is found in one particular place. And it is who? Jesus. Jesus. The Word. The living and the written Word. That's why we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, that He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Because what's He doing? He's allowing us, according to a one fixed mind on the things of God, based on that which is eternally true, that we live according to the principles of that kingdom, even here. This is the way we live and answer the prayer of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Your kingdom come on earth, your will be done on earth as it is in what? Heaven. We live according to those kingdom principles, and what's He doing? He's erasing the disorder that happens in our life. Who handles pressure better? The mature believer who is fixed on the things of Christ because they've walked through life and trials together, they've, uh, together with Christ. They've demonstrated that He is worthy anchor to, to hang yourself upon when everything's raging. When life happens, they're much more sturdy. It doesn't mean they're not shaken by the troubles of the world, but they're much more anchored and stable, not disordered. Do you see the connection? So this is critical when we talk about it in this type of language. You can go to James chapter 3 and read something similar. He describes some jealousy and selfish ambition as the cause of why we are, that word again, unstable or disordered. And what's it being driven from? A soul that's devoted to ourselves and the things of this world and not a soul that's devoted to Christ and His honor and His glory and the reflection of his nature and his character. Now, if we think about it in terms like that, <clears throat> what do we do contextually when we think about darkness? When, when you have seasons of your life that are completely dark, or, or, or seasons of your life where you are just overwhelmed with anxiety, or seasons of your life where it is just wrought with affliction, what do you do in moments like that? What's a normal response? I mean, how should I? Respond. Get in the Word. Right? No, you live the Word. Yes. Right? You live the Word. You flesh the Word out. Because what, did you know that what you believe is not what you think in your head? You believe, what you believe is what you do. In, in the Scriptures, that's an action verb. It's like love. What is love? Right? It's an action. It's not a feeling. Based on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Right? It's an action. It's something that we, we do. It demonstrates that which we truly believe. So when you think about darkness, for example, what I want you to do is, is to think about bad news looming. I mean, some of you, your life is totally unstable and unsettled, or maybe some of the people that you counsel, you see that they're just waiting tomorrow for the phone to ring. You've probably been there in moments that when the phone rings, your heart actually starts to drop because you've been expecting bad news to happen. You ever been in a place like that? Yeah. And what's apt to happen in that moment? What's apt to come out of you at that moment 
is a demonstration of a disordered life and a double-minded soul. And the only thing that anchors you to respond appropriately in the praise and honor and glory of God is what? Hearing the word. Listen to Psalm 112.7. It says, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So what's he saying? He, listen, he doesn't say, listen to John Flavel. John Flavel's a Puritan. He's an old dead guy. He's a good friend of mine, though. So I like to read him all the time. This is what he says. This is his commentary. He says, he does not say, talking about this passage, he does not say his ear shall be preserved from the report of evil tidings. What he's saying is, it's not that God says you're never going to hear evil things that happen or bad news. You're not exempt from bad news, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. What's Jesus assuming in that statement? you got burdens, and they're going to keep coming. And what are you supposed to do? Bring those things to Him, and you will find what? I love this. Rest for your soul. You find rest. So it doesn't say you're not going to get evil tidings. You may hear sad tidings as other men, but your heart will be kept from the terror of those tidings. Why? Because your heart is fixed trusting in the sovereign hand and providence of our God. That's a heart that's stable. Yes. So then, if that's true, then why often are people having a hard time sleeping? Mm -hmm. Even when they're trusting the Lord. Sure. Yeah. So they're not finding rest. They're not finding what? Rest. Yeah. So what's... So when, when you find issues of rest, the scripture is very clear on things like that in the Psalms. When you think about Psalm chapter 6, for example, he's wrestling with the reality of what's going on in life. What is it a demonstration of? When you have issues that happen like that, what's it a demonstration of? Well, even Jesus, all night, prayed in English. Mm -hmm. But was that a constant uh, pattern of his life? No. Why? Because he was trusting. Back up for a second, and I want you to think about this aspect of sleep, for example. When we lack sleep or when we struggle with sleep, what's it a demonstration of? Okay. And none of us are exempt. Okay, You've all wrestled at night, back and forth, for one reason or another. Some legitimate issue that's going on in your life. Uh, you're worried about a, a son or a daughter who's wayward or whatever. All kinds of issues or health issues. Like you're going to the doctor tomorrow, you're fully expecting bad news. Okay? What is that a demonstration of? Trust in God. No, no. It's not trusting God. No, what's, what's, it a, what's it a demonstration of? Not, not necessarily. What is a demonstration? It depends on how you respond to it. Okay? But what I would say is this. It depends in that moment. What it's demonstrating for you is that in yourself... You don't have the authority nor the power to accomplish what needs to be accomplished in this moment. And what's it crying out to? I often look at these moments as a call of God's grace in your life. You say, well, what do you mean by that? It's a demonstration that in you, you don't have what it takes to overcome this particular issue. Those things are actually very healthy for us because what do they demonstrate clearly? God. Reality. That you need something other than you. And where does it point you to? A place where you have to learn to rest. And sometimes, listen, the flesh doesn't die easy. And so you might have a couple of nights or weeks 
where you struggle with issues like this, and where do you keep finding yourself? Wrestling. Listen, what it means to walk godly is not an easy path. It's a narrow way to follow God, and flesh dies hard. It's not a simple thing. When we talk about fighting flesh, listen, you as a believer are never, ever at peace. Never. Until Christ comes. Right? Until that moment. When we're all transported to glory. Or you die. Die is actually a relief. To die is actually a relief. So when you think about it in terms like that, now we have a different picture. It's not that we don't have and wrestle with issues like that. We certainly absolutely do, but we have to see it for what it is. It's a demonstration that we don't have the authority nor the power to handle any of these things. Now, at that moment, that's a crossroad, because are you going to find something else now? Are you going to look to alcohol or some sort of substance? Are you going to look to money and prosperity? What are you going to look, for, look, look to to find security with this trouble? Where are you coming to to find rest for your soul? That's the different issue. Right? That's what leads to patterns of anxiety, depression, whatever, versus now running to Christ in moments like this where you find yourself in a pattern of trusting in Him and His sovereign providential plan. That's the distinction. That's the critical part. And what about in affliction? We've already talked about James chapter 1. I want to finish with this because we're almost done. But I want you to think about affliction relative to James chapter 1. And we cannot miss this part. What all of these human problems are, are a demonstration that you lack wisdom. You lack wisdom. We lack wisdom. We lack seeing appropriately from the nature and the character of who God is. We lack understanding of the scriptures, all of us. None of us are exempt from this. That's why in God's providential plan, he has given us the church to which you are to attend based on the scriptures to do what? To hear the scriptures over and over again. Why? Because you, are, you have the tendency, based on the Old Testament, to be forgetful, to forget the things of God. And you need to uh, attend, to sit under the preaching of the word. For what purpose? So that you can be reminded of what God says over and over and over again. Right? So this is what he's given us in his word, part of the plan for which he's given us in the scriptures. We talk about affliction. When we endure affliction, in those moments, we have choices. We have opportunities to submit our will and the defense of our own selves or to give in to that, right? To pursue those things which we think in the world will satisfy. That's the constant pattern of this life. And even when you're a believer, even mature believers can struggle with this at times. Listen, Paul wrote Romans where he's describing he's doing the things he doesn't want to do and doesn't do the things he wants to do when he's a mature believer, he says, in, in me and my flesh, there is no good thing. Right? Romans was written toward the end of his life. Remember, he had already gone on his at least three missionary journeys. He's trying to go to Spain to further the ministry because he wants the gospel to go to the known world. And he's asking them later in his life, help me get there. And that's where this theological treatise comes from. So no one is exempt from this, and it's always a process of growing. Until the day we die, we will wrestle with this body of death. And so that's why we constantly need fellowship. We constantly need to be under the hearing of the word, studying the word through the disciplines. This is critical. But often what happens in our double-souled life, right, our disordered lives, we have a tendency to run to other places. We have a tendency to 
question God or turn from Him. Can I encourage you that in those moments, even though you don't understand, even though you think, I've sinned against God, don't run from Him. Those moments are intended. We are confident based on the Scriptures that He's using these things to conform you to His image based on His providence because He's promised to do so. So in those moments, don't run from Him, run to Him. Why? Because that's the only way that your life can be ordered or normal. Let me finish with a quote from John Flavel and then a poem by Kuiper. Cowper is his name. William Cowper. He's the famous hymn writer. You probably have uh, sung a number of his, his songs. Kuiper, or Flavel says it like this, Providence is like a curious piece of tapestry made of a thousand shreds, which single appear useless, but put together, they represent a beautiful history to the eye. You see, in moments of life, when trouble comes, when difficulty comes, and you want to run scared and afraid and fearful of what's happening in the seen world around you, what's the encouragement? God and His providence, although this particular string of the tapestry that he's weaving together in you to conform you to the image of his son. It looks odd. It looks like it doesn't fit. But we look back at the end of our life and we see the work that God has done in us as the author and finisher of our, our, of our faith. And we see this beautifully woven tapestry that displays and clarifies this is the glory of God in us. Listen to Cowper's poem. It's called Light Shining into Darkness. This is what he says. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable, uh, unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides His smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower." Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. What we have in the scripture is a way for us to see life and all the brokenness that happens to us as people so that we can return to that which is normal. A way to handle all the brokenness of life in a way that's pleasing to God, that we can still, in this darkened world, reflect the shining light of the beauty and the grandeur of the God that we serve. Did you know that that's why God has revealed Himself? When you talk about theology and His Word, what He's done in revealing Himself has been for His glory. Why? So that you would respond to who He is. And when we respond appropriately by the Spirit, through the work of Christ, what we see is we reflect the character and the nature of God, the way it was intended to be in Genesis chapter 1, that you were created in the image of the invisible God. And I would encourage you with this and with your counselees, don't allow the tangible things that you can see 
the things that happen in your everyday life to deceive you into thinking that that's the reality that you live according to in the world. You live according to a different reality in the scriptures. And the God that you serve is meant to be applied in all those aspects of the life that he's given you to be a good steward, to reflect the character and nature of God. That's why he saved you, is to do that. And then help other people to do that as well. As we struggle in life, all of us do, right? All right, any questions? I'll answer questions maybe for a minute or two. All right, you're ready to go to sleep. So, um, all right. I'll stay, I'll stay after. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 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 I'll stay after. So, all right, you're free to go. Thank you for coming. Don't forget, in the morning, you'll be here. You'll be here early. Thank you. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.